The Rays Radio Network proudly presents This Week in Rays Baseball. The 2-2. Swing and a miss. Hey, struck out. Stanton goes down. That's eight strikeouts for Shane McClanahan. Coming up, we'll recap the action from this past week. Take a look around Major League Baseball and sit down for in-depth interviews with the biggest names in the game. First pitch to him. Line back up the middle, but there is Franco. To the left of the bag, he turns and throws him out, and the Rays have won it in Atlanta. Here's your host, Neil Solons. Welcome to our latest program as we wrap up the first June homestand. Today you'll get to know Kevin Kelly and what he's enjoying most about his first Major League season. Andy Freed will chat with Mark Topkin of the Tampa Bay Times about 40 years covering the game, quite a milestone. I'll have an update on the race minor league system with Jeff McLaren. Plus, I'll discuss race pride day with former Major League umpire Dale Scott. Coming up on this week in race baseball, it's pitcher Kevin Kelly. How did he learn to throw sidearm? That story and more after this on the Race Baseball Network. Well, we continue on This Week in Race Baseball. Our featured guest has had a pretty good impact on the race bullpen this year. In his first year in the major leagues, it's Kevin Kelly. Kevin, thanks so much for a few minutes. Yeah, thanks for talking to me. Yeah. Tell me what this first year has been like for you and how much you have enjoyed this opportunity. Uh, I mean, I'd say a whirlwind, really, really uh, just from like the Rule 5 stuff to spring training. Uh, and then, you know, especially with us moving from Orlando to here to and being here for spring training, which was kind of awesome. Uh, it's just been crazy. And then, yeah, of course, like getting used to the MLB schedule and, every, and all that, it's, it's, uh, it's a lot, yeah. Has it been all you dreamed or hoped of? You know, I'm sure when you got drafted initially, the goal was to get to the big leagues. Yeah, I mean, it's been basically exactly what I could, have, could ask for. I mean, uh, being able to pitch, you know, in you know, every situation, basically, they, they've asked me to. So it's, it's definitely been a lot of fun. I want fans to learn a little bit more about you. Were you always a baseball player as a kid growing up? I did read that you played soccer too. Which sport? When did when did baseball kind of take over and become your sport of choice? Uh, so baseball's really always been my main sport. I played soccer a lot, like competitively too, uh, through high school. But uh, baseball was always my main. Like like if if I had a baseball game and a soccer game on the same day at the same time, I was going to the baseball game. Um, but uh, yeah. So what got you into baseball first? And did soccer in some way, you know, they always say multi-sport athletes is a good thing. How did, how did soccer help you, do you think, as a baseball player? Uh, yeah, uh, so my, base, my dad was a huge baseball fan. Um, there is a huge baseball fan, so yeah, he got me into it from a super young age. There's a video of me, like, hitting wiffle balls when I was, like, two or something. Like, you know, uh, he, he always wanted me to be into it, and I have loved it basically, ever, you know, since I've been a kid. Um, and, yeah, soccer, it definitely helped me with endurance and um, just, like, general athleticism, like, not, you know, anything too specific. I mean, baseball and soccer are a little, like, there's a lot more running in soccer. There's a lot more, like, quick action in baseball and using your arms a lot more. Um, but just, you know, general stuff. As you grew up, when did you decide you wanted to pitch? Or when did pitching kind of become the thing for you? I think it was kind of decided for me. Uh, I was like a decent hitter in high school, but uh, I went to college and only p- pitched there. So basically then was when uh, I, I became just a pitcher. Yeah. So when did you start throwing sidearm and how did that all come about? Because for everybody who's done it, it kind of is unique stories for each. Uh, yeah. So I, I uh, it's a little bit of a long story, but I, I guess when I was in little league still, uh, I was throwing like a bullpen to my dad, uh, and just dropped down on a few to mess around. He's like, man, you, you throw just as hard and the same, same accuracy, like there, like well, you should do that more often. And then kind of like did it a little bit, stopped just no reason, really just the throwing over the top worked fine. Uh, and brought it back. Like I think my junior year of high school started mixing it in a little bit more. And then in college really like started, you know, that was like the main thing was I was going to mostly throw sidearm, like always sidearm to righties. And then about half and half, I threw over the top to lefties. Uh, and then like this past year, really, like basically only through sidearm. Uh, occasionally, I'll still throw like a higher slot fastball, but it's still, you know, not too like different. So when you were coming out of high school in the state of Virginia, were there a lot of colleges looking at you? Were you a reliever, a starter? When did you kind of become a bullpen guy? Uh, just just a couple, really. Um, just George Mason and Gardner-Webb, I guess, were also a little interested. Um, I 
think I committed to JMU my senior year, like September. Um, so and they had like a new coaching staff, no uh, no recruits or anything. So it kind of worked out perfectly for me. Um, I guess. Uh, so I, I relieved my freshman year there, uh, and then I started the next two years. Um, but once I was drafted, it was like, yeah, you're a reliever. You you throw you throw weird. Like you're you're just gonna relieve from now on, basically. Did you? As as you're going through college and high school, did you think of a pro career at that point? Because you didn't get drafted right until until your what junior year at James Madison. Yeah, I guess. Uh, yeah, I guess it's always in the back of your mind. I didn't throw very hard in college, so I it was kind of a this is probably going to be it for me. But I guess uh, my pitching coach got me into the the Cape Cod League, and that like really helped me along. I think get some eyes on me. So what year was that, and where did your velo go from? to where it is now like where were you and how did you increase velocity uh i think so i was i was like 86 88 my senior year uh, our junior year of college uh in 2019 uh and then i got drafted and i guess i i lost a bunch of weight after in that off season like my my rookie league season i was still about like maybe a little higher 87 89 because i was relieving uh and yeah lost some weight did some weight ball drills shortened up my arm action like a little bit um, and of course, lifting general strength stuff. Uh, and then the, the COVID year, I think really like that's where I had the biggest jump. I think coming into that spring training the next year, uh, got up to like 93 or 94 that year. Um, and just kind of stabilized around there since then. You're a pretty bright guy and probably could have gone into a number of areas if baseball hadn't worked out for you. Tell us, tell our fans a little bit about some of the computer work uh, that you did as a youngster and also all the way through college. Uh, yeah, so my mom was a uh, major in computer science. Uh, I guess she has a master's, actually. Uh, and so she got me into that when I was pretty young, just doing little silly programming things. Um, and high school, I took a couple programming classes and liked it a lot, so decided to make that my major. Um, and at JMU, it was great. Like, they were great with my, like, baseball schedule and everything. So it was, it really worked out well. Um, I guess a couple of projects like uh, I, I liked working on the NCAA b database we made for for a class, just a little project. It, but it was it was fun because you could break down some stuff that the public facing I guess database for NCAA didn't really have like day night stuff and uh, m like different. Yeah, you could do like how did people perform this week versus whatever other uh, things. There were a bunch of little queries we could do, so that was interesting. Um, like building a uh, operating system was fun um, just uh, all, all kinds of interesting projects so you basically created something that makes the NCAA stat site better in some ways or, so, or, or at least a or at least a, a project that would have yeah just like a hypothetical project that could have done that yeah uh, I think that they have all that data it's just not like mo a lot of people aren't that interested in it I think so they don't they want to take the time to put it on the web I think so, yeah so you obviously have an analytical mind. When you came to the Rays and were Rule 5 by the Rays, were you excited because they're an analytical organization too? Yeah, definitely. So the Cleveland was, was also pretty big uh, on analytics as well, so I was curious to see where they differed and, and all that stuff. Uh, it's definitely been interesting to see a different perspective. So what's the biggest difference between the two? Apply it on a personal level. What, what do you – how do they – how, maybe how does Cleveland use data differently than the Rays do in, in like kind of uh, broad terms? Uh, I think at, at times it'll be, or there's a, there's a probably a larger focus actually on the data with Cleveland. There's at least with working with Snyder and stuff, I can't say, cause I was only in the minor leagues there. So I can't say anything about how they do it at the big league level, but working with Snyder, it's a lot of like, well, the data says this, but if you feel good or feel this, like, we're going to keep going with that feeling because it's, you know, better for you kind of thing. Not trying to force yourself to do, to, to have better numbers just to you know, make, make your score go up, basically. Just, uh, so there's a little bit of that. And, you know, of course, uh, throwing first pitch strikes is much more emphasized here. Um, it, it was important there, too, but I'd say to a much greater extent here, yeah. How much have you learned this year? Uh, a, a decent amount. Uh, I, I think just the, the approach stuff here just pitching in the big leagues has been like kind of eye-opening just how different guys uh take their at-bats when they're hitting really it's the biggest thing i've noticed yeah and from someone who again you, we mentioned your, your computer background you still spend a lot of time 
doing, you know, tooling around with computers, or if not, when you're away from the field, what are your, your hobbies? What do you enjoy doing? Uh, I do at times. Uh, I haven't recently um, been doing too many projects, but uh, I enjoy playing video games. I enjoy cooking. Um, uh, I'll bake some cookies occasionally and bring them in. Um, you know, I, I enjoy... Like, like in New York, I walked around the city because I was, I don't know, but we had an off day there. It was awesome to be able to go see somewhere I hadn't seen. I, that's one of the other things I've really liked about this year is just being able to go visit places and that I wouldn't normally be able to go visit for free. It's been kind of awesome. So we have not hit all the cities yet, but to this point, what's been your coolest experience and why? Um, hmm. I really liked walking around Boston. Um, the, just I thought the, the architecture was very nice. Um, wasn't just like a bunch of, you know, faceless skyscrapers, a lot of older buildings and stuff. I thought that was really cool. And then since you did bake cookies, is that only for the bullpen guys or do you do you do that for groups here? I, I usually just try to bring them into the clubhouse, put a couple bags of it, you know, all throughout. They're really for anybody who wants them. So what's your, what's your go-to when uh, you're baking? Chocolate chip cookies. That's basically what I make. I'll just chocolate chip cookies and, yeah. And they've gone over well? Yeah, I think, I think people enjoy them. No. And then other cooking, what else What else do you like to make at home? Uh, a lot of, like, stir-fries. I like to make uh, like Chinese food um, and, you know, basically anything but mac and cheese and, uh, yeah, just anything that I kind of set my mind to, I'll try to make. <laughs> so just like your uh, your experiences at the big league level are growing, your cooking uh, experience is growing too? A bit. It, it was a little easier in the past because we didn't get fed as much in the minor leagues, but, but here I get, you know, three meals at the ballpark every day, so less uh less excuses to make stuff in the morning gotta watch the figure a little bit there you go and what do you also do to you know you mentioned the cooking and and the baking what do you also do to relax your mind because i think it's important when you're not at the field to be able to break away from baseball a little bit and not be 24 7 yeah i mean i enjoy reading and um and playing video games they both especially if i really just am like okay i'm not tired i need to like just run myself out, play something mindless, and then just go to bed or read something, and that will get me tired. Yeah. So give me video game of choice, and um, then the latest book that you really enjoyed. Okay. Um, probably Civ Six, um, and I actually enjoy reading cookbooks, so The Walk. Uh, it's a book by uh, Kenji. Uh, just a good, I don't know, good cookbook. Uh, like the Food Lab is probably the more famous one by him, but it's also good. Good. Good stuff. And in terms of this season, obviously, it's gone great for the club. You've had a tremendous experience. What's been your favorite moment so far? And uh, what are you hoping to experience as this year goes on? Oh, I mean, I want to win a World Series, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> favorite experiences have just been uh, just any of the games where we've come back big and won. I think uh, maybe just because it was so early in the season, but the one in D.C., I don't remember how many runs we were down, but I think we scored like five in the ninth or something. That, that one was awesome, like just Especially, I had pitched earlier in the game and was sitting, you know, just in the locker room, like, oh, darn, like, yeah, here comes our first loss. And then we just scored five runs or whatever out of nowhere. It was, it, was, it was really cool. Well, hopefully there's more moments like that. There's certainly been a lot of great moments so far this year. Kevin Kelly, great to chat with you. Continu- continued success. Yeah, thanks for talking to me. Good, good to hear from me. Yeah. And this is Kevin Kelly with Neil Solons and This Week in Race Baseball. We'll continue in just a moment. You're listening to the Race Baseball Network. Andy Freed with you on the Rays Radio Network, and I'm going to talk right now to a guy that is usually, if not always, the guy that is doing the interviewing. Uh, but today he is the subject, and that's because we celebrate 40 years of Mark Topkin covering the Rays and baseball here in the Tampa Bay area. And, and Topper, 40 years uh, is a, a pretty long time in this business, especially for the job that you've been in. Does 40 years seem like a long time ago, or as they say, did it go in a flash? It's probably one of those, Andy, where you'd say both. I mean, you know, I think back to... 40 years I started, I came right out of college, right out of Drake University, uh, had a couple different job offers, decided this was the best one. The then St. Petersburg Times started on June 6, 1983. And uh, there's some times when I, I think of all that's happened you know, in, in the world, in the Tampa Bay area, in my own life, yep. in those 40 years, and you think, wow, that's really a long time ago. And other times it does feel like it's a, it's a couple blinks of a couple eyes. And, and you know, suddenly here we are, I'm 61 years old, I've been doing this for this long, and uh, we haven't cake in the press box, and you gave a beautiful speech the other day, so thank you for that. Well, we all appreciate it. I mean, we knew we'd be celebrating anniversaries this year for 25th for the Rays, but yours is obviously 15 years longer than that. Take me back to the beginning, though. I, kn- I know you were in New York for a while as a family, and then you moved down to Florida. What were the circumstances about that when you first got here, and were you a sports-related family? 
Yeah, really not a big sports family. I'm, you know, played. My mom actually was the bigger baseball fan than my dad. Uh, grew up in the New York area, out on Long Island, so we were kind of the the Mets, Jets, Nets group, as opposed to the the Knicks, Rangers, Giants, uh, kind of the the blue blood, so to speak. And we were Mets, Jets, Nets. We were the suburban Long Island. Uh, went to Mets games as a kid, so that was kind of my first allegiance in baseball. Uh, I was 12 years old, and uh, my dad was kind of he had some stores. He owns a group of ladies' shoe stores with some partners, and he decided. Uh, some of his family had moved to the Fort Lauderdale area, so he thought we would move as well. His mom and dad were down there, and one of his sisters, the other one, was coming. So we moved down there. He opened some stores down there. So I grew up in Coral Springs, which at the time, just for people that know that area, they started a high school when I was there. My first year, we went to portables for like half sessions, and that was the first. we became the first graduating class. There's now five high schools in Coral Springs. That's how that's grown, but... Uh, came out of Coral Springs High School, and, and I was just one of those weird people, Andy. I, I kind of thought I knew what I wanted to do, and, and not saying at all that that's the right path. And probably a lot of people who have that end up changing, but I thought I wanted to become a sports writer. I wanted to get into journalism. I wanted to be in sports journalism. Uh, had some college. This was also uh, dating myself here. Now, if you're going to college, you have these you know online tours you can do and Zoom talks and talk to students and, and look at the cameras and watch real life. When I was looking for college they came to your high school gym. They sent a representative from each college. They set up a table in the gym for college night. They handed you pamphlets. So here I am in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, Coral Springs, Florida, looking at these pamphlets. And I was like, huh, this Drake University, this sounds cool and had a good reputation for journalism. You got to start in journalism as a freshman. You didn't have to do two years of liberal arts, which a lot of other schools then, including the University of Florida, where a lot of my friends were going, was requiring. I thought, all right, this sounds good. Had a couple other offers or interest. One was Marquette, happened to have a teacher in in high school, mentioned to her, she said, oh, I went there. You realize that's like a campus in the city of Milwaukee. There's not really the, the green trees and the brick buildings like you're probably imagining. And I'm looking at that Drake brochure, and it was brick buildings and green trees. And I didn't actually think what it might be like in the winter. You know, I'm just looking at these pretty pictures. So I uh, ended up going to Drake, uh, and sure enough, you do get to start as a freshman there in journalism and I worked on the school paper right from the start. So that was really kind of the path that got me on the path to ending up here. Did you get support and encouragement when you said that you wanted to do this? Uh, When people want to get into sports, sometimes families don't understand it. I speak from personal experience. It's almost like, well, when's he going to get a real job? That seems like a, a toy job. And were you a good writer? Had you gotten complimented on your writing at all in high school? Did that skill come naturally to you? Yeah, so um, I'll answer both parts. That one is my dad had gone to a year or two of college, but really not. For, I think he went for engineering, and he ended up opening a chain of ladies' shoe stores. So, and there was really no one else with small family kind of on both sides. None of his sisters. No one else had gone to college. So, I, I wasn't like necessary. I wasn't truly the first, but I kind of was the first person in the family to go to college. I'm the oldest of all the the cousins. So, uh, I don't think anybody objected. I'm not sure they thought whether that was a good or bad idea that I was going to go and wanted to go into sports journalism. Uh, but I, I did, I wanted to do that. And then uh, as far as experience, this is going to, this, this will speak to both my writing ability and my baseball playing ability. So uh, when I was in Coral Springs and uh, kind of got through Little League and then we had like a senior league, uh, which is kind of before you get to high school kind of thing. And I was playing in that, and we had a weekly newspaper down there called the Coral Springs Forum, and they had roundups on, there's like three or four leagues at that point in the area, and they would have a little roundup in the paper each week about that league. So they didn't have our league in there, so I called them one day, and I was like, hey, how come you don't have whatever, Coral Springs major or senior, whatever we were called, and we don't have anybody to do it? Do you want to do it? So I'm thinking, well, I'm not a good enough player that my name's ever going to be in the article, so sure, I'll do it. So that's how I started, was writing up a weekly roundup of the Little League results uh, the, of the league I was in, senior league results, the league I was in for the Coral Springs Forum. That would actually be my first ever byline. You must have had uh, an ability to use the language well. Uh, proper grammar is important, that sort of thing. But you guys went from New York, where there's a million teams, and not only good sports writers, kind of the hub of sports writing, especially at that time. You moved to Florida, where where are the professional teams who became the people that you ended up reading? Because you couldn't hop online back then and, and read out-of-town newspapers. So who, did, who made an impression on you in that field? Well, what I remember was uh, the Dolphins were playing and the Fort Lauderdale Strikers were a really big deal, soccer team. And they, in fact, in high school, just as a quick aside, I, a couple of my buddies, we actually came up here, uh, weren't old enough, but got a hotel room anyway in Tampa. Probably kept some poor people in the next room up way too late. But 
we came up for a Strikers Rowdies game. It was that big of a deal that a bunch of high school kids who were Fort Lauderdale Strikers fans came up to go to a Strikers Rowdies game at the old Tampa Stadium. So uh, there was that there, but there was actually a group, and I, I don't, I'm not going to remember all the names, but there was a group of sports writers at the Fort Lauderdale Sun Sentinel at that time who have gone on to become some of the best uh, in our business at a bunch of different forms. Some are on TV now, some are writers now. So there was some uh, inspiration there. But, yeah, growing up in New York and reading that, and then you look, the New York papers are very easy to get in Fort Lauderdale, too. Mm -hmm. It's kind of New York South, as you know. So I think that probably inspired me. I never really kind of put that together until you just asked that. But that gave me the base to do it, and and I just think wanting to do it and and not really having, like, there was no plan B or anything. It's like I want to go try to be a sports writer. Went to a school where you could do it right away. Got worked on the school paper right away. Ended up working for the Des Moines Register uh, one year as an intern and one year as a part-timer. I was the stringer for the Associated Press in college. So... When you were growing up in in uh, Maryland, and you would read one paragraph about the Drake basketball game that Lewis Lloyd scored 22 points to lead Drake to a win over Creighton, period, that incredibly well-constructed, detailed sentence, I wrote it, and that went out on the National Wire. And you actually wrote six paragraphs, but almost every paper just ran one. But once in a while, I'd call my mom, and I'd be like, look in the paper, see if there's anything about Drake in the Fort Lauderdale paper. And she goes, there is. I'm like, I wrote that. Awesome. I, you know, as driven as you are at age 61, I can only imagine what you were like as a teenager, late teenager, early 20s. I picture you getting to Drake, going to the paper, and taking it by storm. It sounds like opportunity knocked a couple times, but it seemed like when it did, you were ready for it. Yeah, and I think I, I knew it. I, again, I think I had a, a fair idea. And, you know, once I kind of got there, I was a reporter the first year, a sports reporter. Then I was a sports editor the second year. Then I was editor of the whole paper. Wow the third year and, and created a little bit of a stir. It was a, had a chance to do an interview with the president of the college. And there was some controversy. I don't remember what the specific controversy was, but kind of caught him in a lie a little bit and, and wrote a story about it. And it became a pretty big deal. And they had ended up changing some policy or something at the wow. college. And, you know, it wasn't a shocking investigation, but it was just a matter of, you know, getting FaceTime with him, kind of being persistent and then kind of catching something like that. And so that, w- that kind of gave me a taste of it. And, and look, you know, you, Watergate was an inspiration. Yeah. And, you know, some of the other things that were going on, all the president's men, you watch that absence of malice, these newspaper movies, you know, and you kind of kind of get you going and, and kind of get you used to fun a little bit. But, yeah, it was something I did have a passion for and obviously, you know, went through college, like I said, working at Real Life Experience at the Des Moines Register for the Associated Press. Uh, and then had three job offers, ended up coming here, and, and again, kind of picked the job offer that I thought would give me the chance to maybe, you know, be in the best situation. It was the best paper of the three. The other were the Cedar Rapids Gazette in Iowa. And then uh, there was something with the Fort Myers paper, but this was so long ago. Mm-hmm. USA Today was still kind of new, and they had a writer on loan, and I think there was some contingency. Like, if I took the job, but their writer that they had on loan to USA Today got sent back, then my position kind of got eliminated, and I'd have to reapply for a different job. And I was like, eh, St. Pete sounds better. So I started 32-hour a week as a news copy editor, actually. Interviewed in sports and news, got hired by news, but just decided, let me see if I can work my way into sports, and I did. Can you explain what the landscape of newspaper writing was at that point in time? It, it's a different world, right, compared to, to what it is now. I, I can tell you, as a kid growing up that loved sports, the, and I just told you this this week, I thought the beat writers were rock stars. I mean, I couldn't – I was nervous – to meet them. Uh, and, and can you explain how different it is for the kids today? What was the newspaper business like compared to now back in 1983? The kids today, right? We <laughs> all we now. use that phrase a lot. Well, I, I think a couple of things that stand out would be one is what, what you said, and I take that very complimentary that you said the beat writers used to be the rock stars, but the beat writers were the main source of information back then. I don't think you had, uh, well, I, I think you had the TV, local TV people, but I don't think they reported outside of when they were on the air. You didn't have blogs. You didn't have uh, people dedicated to writing about teams that worked elsewhere. So you pretty much had the beat writers. They traveled with the team. They wrote about it. You know, you got if you had a if you were lucky enough to be in a city as you were for a while, where there was an afternoon paper and a morning paper, uh, and you had you know several papers covering the team. Some markets just had one paper, but that's how the information came out. There weren't team websites. There weren't people like I said doing blogs. There weren't television people that also wrote about the team. So. There was one sense of information. The other big difference, and, and we've talked about this before, and this is going to be the portion of this interview where we sound like the uh, grumpy old men here, but it used to be you could report and then write. Mm-hmm. And those are two distinctly different things. And I use spring training as the best example because a spring training day in the past, you would wake up, go to the field, do some interviews before uh, the workout, 
watch guys work out. You can usually catch somebody after the initial workout, see what happens in the game, maybe work a little bit on your story, then write your story because maybe what happened in the game changed what you were going to write or something. But nowadays, they don't. It's, everything is instant. Everything is immediate. And, you know, apply that to a regular game, too. Like, as soon as we're done with this interview, I'm going to go down, check the lineup, and have to tweet something about who's playing, who isn't playing. So you're reporting and writing at the same time. And some days, you have to kind of remind yourself of that balance. Like, my, my job, I get paid to write for the Tampa Bay Times. I don't get paid to put stuff on Twitter to keep fans informed. Now, I do that because I think they appreciate it. I hope, ultimately, it leads them to click through, read our articles, and subscribe to the Tampa Bay Times. That's the point. But... We are, uh, sometimes it feels like we're in the fast food business. Like you're running a, a diner. Like, hey, get me this, get me that. Answer this question, answer this question. Uh, and you have to kind of keep in mind what your end goal is. Your end goal is to have a finished product for the Tampa Bay Times, but we have a website. So that's where it gets cross-haired sometimes. You have to also be, a, like, file immediately for the website when there's news, but also realize there's still a story to be told as well. And sometimes you have to kind of write the same story two or three times, and that happens as well. So all that adds to the differences. You said when there's news. When I first got here and met you, Rick Vaughn, who, of course, ran the PR department here for the Rays for so long, uh, described you to me and said he, more than anyone I know, knows what news is. How did that become ingrained in you? I take that as, as I would, if I were you, take that as a pretty high compliment because that, in essence, is quite often what, what you do on a daily basis. Did that come naturally or did that evolve with you over the course of just getting experience? Well, first, I, I agree with you and, and, you know, I think you know how high of, how high of praise I hold Rick in and how high regard I hold Rick in and uh, he had, I have heard him say that and, and I always appreciate that. It's a very big compliment, but I, I think it kind of grew out of one being just a voracious reader of other writers, of other uh, beat writers, of other forums to cover teams and just kind of learning what was news. Uh, and I think in this, again, this sounds very kind of anecdotal, but I like to tell people what's going on. So I can do that when you and I talk at lunch and then tell you what's going on or my grandson's visiting and you're asking me, what did Eli do today? But, you know, what what happened with the Rays today? So I'm, I'm telling you as a, as a reader what's going on by writing or tweeting or blogging or doing all three sometimes. Uh, so I, I think it's kind of an innate sense. And just to quickly follow with that, going back to your previous question, that's changed too. What's news has changed. Uh, because sometimes things that you maybe didn't think were news because of the immediacy of it now and because of the competition of it, yeah. to be honest, you have to kind of push on. And that was news. Like, why isn't this guy playing? Well, the manager said, no, he's just having a day off. Well, Probably need to go ask him just to be sure. And maybe ask one of his friends, too, and, and maybe try to catch somebody else with the team. You know, is that really why the guy's not playing? And um, the other thing that's, in a way, entertaining but also frustrating is sometimes you spend a ton of time working on a story. Um, just I wrote most recently, the one that was just out the other day was on the brothers yes. uh, Joshua and Nathaniel Lowe. Uh, they're playing for the first time. And it took a lot of time to do that story. And it, it got a decent response among our readers. But then there's some days where a list of what are the player's favorite walk-up songs or you won't believe what the jewelry this player was wearing or pet photos of the Rays players brought their dogs to the ballpark today. And that gets five times as many clicks as a story you spent three days really crafting. And you're like, well, I thought I knew what was news, but maybe not so much anymore. Maybe the audience has evolved as everything else has evolved. You know, we only have so much time with you today, but what was it like to cover all those near misses of baseball coming to Tampa Bay? There was the White Sox. There was the Giants. There was the Mariners. There was other ones that my reference of it is that they all got close. When did you think that it actually was going to happen? And what was it like during those other times when it was a rush to the end and then it didn't happen? Well, one thing I'll say, and, and I don't mean in any way to diminish what I'm doing now, but I felt like reporting on those stories you you carried a much heavier burden like I'm, I'm gonna get the score right of the game probably tonight and who gets the right hit and maybe there's a typo or something but you're pretty much gonna have it done right but on those stories you were constantly like were you being played by somebody was someone lying like this is the there's people who have literally given 20 and 30 years of their life to try to make this happen there's people that are gonna have millions of dollars invested in this and, and you were also even though you weren't, I wasn't part of the effort to get a team here. We were viewed by people in Major League Baseball as the representative. There were people who would ask me questions and other reporters like, what are they really saying? What do they think? Do they think this could work? Do they really have the money? Who are these new guys in the group? So you were, I just felt there was a really big burden in reporting that story. And also, 
like I said, you had no idea who the honest person was. And there were some days where you could talk to a couple owners, a couple people in Major League Baseball, go to an owner's meeting. I would, I spent some of the incredible hours in some of the best hotels in America in the lobby and the restroom waiting for guys to come out of meetings. But you just were in a situation where you had to constantly be on guard because who was telling you the truth? Where was the, where was the needle pointing toward truth? And you didn't know who that person was at times. So that was really challenging. I, I think the White Sox thing, that's when I first got involved was the White Sox deal. So kind of getting in on that late, that seemed pretty legit. I mean, I think Jerry Reinsdorf meant what he said. If they didn't get the new stadium in Chicago, they were going to move here. Uh, I saw the plans for Al Lang was going to be increased. They were going to play there for a couple of years till the Trop or what was then Suncoast Dome was ready. Uh, and then the governor of Illinois changed all that. The Giants deal, I've told this story before, Rick Dodge, uh, rest in peace, the former city man, assistant city manager of St. Pete who championed that effort. He and Vince DiMoli had secretly flown to San Francisco. They got caught on TV by the one of the crews out there. It aired at like midnight after the Olympics one night on NBC affiliate here on WFLA. Big breaking news. They are going to have a deal to buy the Giants. Sleeping in this brand new house. Wife and kids were out. I was trying to move us in. Phone plugged in the wall back then, right? No cell phones. I'm sleeping on an air mattress. In this strange house for the first day, nothing's unpacked. I hear this phone ringing. It's like still dark. I'm so confused. I find the phone, and Rick Dodge is screaming, and I don't want to get your license taken away. I won't okay. use the curse word, but we just bought the blanky-blank Giants. Like, what? He goes, we bought the blank-blank Giants. There's going to be a press conference at noon at the Trop. This is for real. This is happening. Oh, my God. I called the paper. We published a special edition that morning. That morning, we had something out, and people were selling it on street corners at noon at the press conference. Turned out that didn't happen. MLB said no to that. So after those two, then you became very suspect. Like, what what is happening here? Is this, like, never going to happen? And then, obviously, Vince Namoli uh, put some pressure on some people. MLB had expanded once. They didn't get the team here again. It went to Florida, and uh, to South Florida and to Denver. And then I think you sense, okay, it's either they're going to have this massive lawsuit or they're going to get a team here. And then a few years later, uh, under Vince Namoli's leadership, they did get a team here. I think they did. And uh, and your life changed, I would think, in a sense, overnight. Only have a little bit of time left. What has it been like for you covering uh, the Devil Rays when they were new through the years where they were ridiculed for whether it be mismanagement or just poor play on the field to when Stu Sternberg buys the team? And as you had said recently, as we've been reminiscing all year, when these kids named Andrew Friedman and Matt Silverman and, of course, Stu uh, had these lofty goals, a lot of people were like, well, let's let's see it happen. And, of course, they have done it and changed this franchise. How has your job changed from uh, 98 to 07 compared to 08 to now when this team has become maybe the most interesting team to cover in baseball? Well, you work an extra month a lot of years. <laughs> yeah. That's one difference because uh, we used to cover the, the other playoffs, the other teams they're in, but I never really ever thought about the Devil Rays being in the postseason so that was one big change. But look, you, you, you don't we know it's a tenet of journalism. You don't root for the team you cover. But I also think it's a fact that, you know, the job you do, people are going to be more cooperative when they're in a better mood. Right. When things are going better. So your job, in a way, can be easier in a sense. Uh, but the, the fact that this was such a massive historical turnaround, it, it was I've always said it's been a privilege to have covered this team for the entire time. But then, like, add that to an extra level of privilege is that covering one of the greatest turnarounds in sports history of a team that was absolutely one of the worst to suddenly became one of the best. And, you know, the Rays, they have their secrets. They do a lot of things secretively. But they're also, in other ways, very open about things. So to feel like you're just a little bit, like 10% on the inside and kind of know what's happening. So it's just been remarkable. And I will say that there were a few years during those lean years. I remember sitting in Kansas City one day for a day game. The Bucks were playing. It was late in the season. It was a terrible game. The Rays, Devil Rays gave up like eight runs in the first two innings. It's hot. I couldn't get a flight out that night, so I was going to have to stay over. And just thinking, like, this isn't really fun anymore. Like, this isn't fun. No one's going to read this story. Like, I'm going to read it. My wife's going to read it. Maybe one other person I know by accident's going to read it. Like, no one cares. No one's going to read this. Uh, and there was an offer at that point to go switch to our Bucks beat that had opened up. And I gave it a lot of thought and, and really did. And I don't know. I don't know. And I'm I like baseball, I'm comfortable with baseball, and then some other person emerged, and I was like, all right, I'll just stay, I'm good, um, and stayed with baseball, and, and certainly glad I did, because no one knew it was going to happen when the sale was announced, and, you know, who these people are, like, who knows what this means, are they going to keep the team here, or they know what they're doing, they have no experience, what's this going to be like, 
and it turned out to be a remarkable story that we know has been chronicled in books and, 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 and other ven- other forums as well, and certainly in the pages of the Tampa Bay Times. Topper, you've been doing this. Uh, I, I mean, I view you as the historian, really, of this franchise. De facto, there may not be an official title on your name, but no one has had the seat that you've had for sports coverage in this area, in particular baseball, prior to, and now here we are. You're 61. It's a young man's job. I've told you this before. You know this. Uh, it, it, there's a lot of things that have, your job has gotten a lot harder over the years in terms of travel, in terms of access, in terms of a, a bunch of things. How much longer do you want to do this? I can't make a retirement announcement today. I'm not going to let you break that news. No, look, I, I, I don't know, Andy. I mean, I honestly don't know. I mean, everything you said is true, and certainly the stadium situation here. I, I will say this, that me getting to about 65 is about when the lease at the Trop ends, so... You know, I don't know that that's the end. I don't know that's the finish line. I, I, hopefully I have the opportunity to make that decision on my own. I mean, it's a changing industry as well. But um, I'd like to see where this heads. And, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe there's one year in the new stadium, wherever that is. Uh, I live on St. Pete Beach, so certainly the closer to this side in that one tiny little one millimeter of selfishness. But I, I don't have a finish line. I mean, I, I still feel like I have the energy to do this. And, and you're right. The travel does uh, wear on you certainly a little bit more. Those of us who have to travel commercially as opposed to the yep. team radio broadcasters, yep. uh, but but it's still fun, and, and I think that's probably the most important thing is that I still wake up every day wanting to do my job and do my job really well, and I think that's a good sign. I think when I get to that point where I don't, that I'll know it's time. Yep. Well, at some point, all good things will have to come to an end, but not in the near future, and we're glad to hear that, Topper. We celebrate your 40 years covering the Rays. You're the one guy that's been here from – you are the straight line, and I know when I get to work and I see you, even if it's from the booth looking down on the field, I feel like, okay, I get some comfort in seeing you at the ballpark every day, and I hope people understand the energy you still bring to it and enjoy your reading in the Tampa Bay Times. Congratulations, and uh, here's to many more. Thank you, Andy, and I appreciate uh, your friendship and, and your uh, guidance. And there's days when I've asked you, like, how should I do this? And, and your advice has been very important as well. So there's that, that part of it, I think, is the camaraderie is an extra bonus to all this. Certainly appreciate Andy Free doing that special interview with Mark Topkin of the Tampa Bay Times. And uh, time now to take a look at things on the minor league side as we look at the first couple months of the season and with us, Director of Minor League Operations, Jeff McLaren. Jeff, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me on, Neil. How would you characterize the first couple months in the race minor league system? You know, it's been it's been a good start to the season. I think that, you know, if you just take a look at wins and losses, uh, we haven't quite kept up the pace that we had set for ourselves over the last couple of years. But what our goal is, is not necessarily to win minor league championships. While those are nice, um, it's to develop, you know, major league caliber players. And I think kind of up and down the system, we're seeing a lot of guys take some some real strides towards um, being the next group of players that can be part of a, a championship level level big league team. Probably the guy who's made the largest stride and has gotten the most attention nationally is Junior Caminero. Where has he grown the most, and has he surprised you in any way? You know, I think for anybody um, to do what he's done at at age 19 before he even, even turns 20 um, has to be surprising. But I will tell you that, you know, from the moment that he, he joined our group, um, after the trade with Cleveland uh, a couple years back, you know, there, there was a lot of talk amongst our, our staff about how he has the possibility to be really special. And, you know, he has, he's put in a lot of work. Um, our staff has put in a lot of work with him to continue to develop, you know, not only, you know, on the field, but, you know, off the field as well in terms of putting in time and with strength and conditioning and, and, you know, just maturing and, and becoming a professional and, you know, allowing his, his physical gifts to play. I mean, it, it, it is a, you know, special uh, ability with bat the ball and to make impact. And, you know, he really wants to push himself. Uh, he's, he's a guy that we, we approached him last, you know, last fall about going over to Australia and being potentially one of the youngest players in a league that's, you know, a million miles away from home uh, where, you know, English is the, the main language and, he was willing to go do it and because he knew it would, would set him up to, to have this kind of success and, you know, really a testament to him and all the work that he's done for, for him to do what he's doing so far this year. Did he almost force your hand to move him to double A? You know, that's something we, we discussed a lot. And as a group about, you know, this is definitely, he was one of the youngest players in high A and now we're making a pretty aggressive move to double A, but amongst our staff, it, they felt like this was really the right thing for him to do. Um, 
to continue to be challenged, to continue to develop. You know, one of our our jobs in minor league operations is to to get players at a spot where they're going to have enough challenge that they're going to continue to to push themselves and get better. And um, just felt like you know, Double A was where that needed to be. Um, certainly, he still has things to work on. You know, we're we're constantly pushing on him about his you know strike zone discipline, about you know finding the, the right pitches to hit, not just any pitch because with his bat to ball skills and his play coverage, he can hit pretty much anything, but it's finding the right pitches. And especially as, as he gets to those upper levels, making sure that he's, you know, continuing to force pitchers into the zone. And uh, we felt like double a was the, the best spot for him to do that at this point. In most years, probably Carson Williams would be getting a whole lot more attention, but because of the start, the juniors off to, it's probably covered a little bit. How has he grown from his first full year in uh, full season affiliated baseball? So, Last year was a phenomenal year for Carson. Uh, you know, he was, you know, a minor league gold glove winner, you know, hitting a bunch of home runs and in doing some great things offensively in, in low A in Charleston. You know, the one spot that, that he was working on that, that we've addressed or trying to address is kind of the, the strikeouts and, and getting those under control. And he's really, you know, done a really good job of, of working with our, our, our hitting coach in Bowling Green, Paul Roselle, um, you know, our hitting coordinators about really putting a plan into place to to cut down on that and improve his you know his his swing decisions but also you know finding pitches that he can make contact on and we we're, we're seeing some early signs that that's those strikeouts are starting to come down while still being able to keep the power and continuing to play the the elite level defense that he's doing and yeah like you said he was he was playing right next to junior there on that infield in bowling green and you know a lot of the the, the attention went, went junior's way uh given the start that he got off to but certainly don't want to lose sight of the, the strides that, that Carson has made. Up the middle players are very important. And, and obviously Carson Williams is a guy who can play up the middle. Same goes for a catcher, Dom Keegan, who you drafted last year. How have you felt about the way he started his pro career, his first full season in full season baseball? Certainly excited about the start that Dom's off to. And, and you know, the, you know, anytime a, a catcher in the minor leagues is putting up the, the offensive numbers um, that he has so far, it, it, it draws attention, but I, I'm being honest, like, I think the thing that we're almost as excited about or even more excited about is kind of, is the strides that he's made defensively. He, he didn't catch a ton at Vanderbilt, uh, just given some of the other guys that were on that roster, but our, our scouts identified him as someone that had the, the tools to, to grow into being an everyday catcher. And, you know, through the work that Dom's put in with our, our manager, at Charleston there, Sean Smedley, uh, we've seen a lot of, of really good improvement um, in his receiving, also in his controlling of the running game uh, and the, the way that he's worked on his footwork, uh, his arm strength, and, and really turning himself into a, you know above average defensive catcher. And to put that together with what he's able to do at the plate, uh, it's pretty exciting because um, you just you know you don't see too many catchers throughout the minor league landscape who are able to to be a complete package. Obviously, the Rays have had a lot of injuries to their pitching staff at the big league level that's kind of tested the depth. It looks like Evan McKendry is coming closer to being able to help at some point. How has he grown in AAA Durham? That is a very fair statement. Um, you know, certainly our depth has been tested. Uh, but, you know, we try to, to frame it as, as opportunity. Um, you know, the, the five guys who were rolling out um, in the starting rotation in Durham this week are, are not the five guys, none of the five guys that we started with. Uh, but that certainly opens up opportunity. And like you're saying, Evan has stepped into that, that role. He, you know, he kind of started the year as kind of the sixth, sixth man, but very quickly moved into the rotation. And he's, he's a guy that will never overwhelm you with stuff, but really knows how to pitch. And he has a lot of different weapons that he has at his disposal. Um, and certainly the first, you know, the first few times through the rotation was figuring out what does and doesn't work at the AAA level. And, really started to hit his stride, you know, over the last month and, you know, it has kind of figured out a formula Him working there with, with our pitching coach, Brian Reese to, to really craft um, a way to attack triple A lineups. And he's done, done as well as we could ask for, you know, pitching into the seventh inning in multiple starts, um, really being a, a staff saver as well as, as being kind of a, an anchor of that, that rotation. And yeah, certainly putting himself, on the radar for, for, you know, a big league opportunity should the, the need arise. 
And then below AAA, is there maybe a name, Jeff, that where a, a starting pitcher or a pitcher in general has really emerged that you guys have really been impressed with that individual's growth? I think one of the, the most you know exciting things so far is kind of seeing um, a couple of guys you know return to health and kind of pop back up on the radar. Both of them had started the year in Double A, Jacob Lopez and Cole Wilcox. Um, since that time, Jacob's kind of earned a promotion to Triple A with some of the the moves that have happened and the opportunity that that's popped up. But you know, both had missed time with with elbow injuries. They missed all of last year with elbow injuries. Um, and you know, you never never quite know how guys are going to bounce back and and how long it'll take them to bounce back. But we've been really excited with the the strides that each of them have shown so far this year. Um, really putting themselves in a position that uh, they're going to be, they're going to be big leaguers um, in the not too distant future. And, and so that really, you know, especially like you've mentioned our pitching depth being tested uh, exciting to see those guys come back from injury and have the success that they're having. Jeff, good stuff. We certainly appreciate a few minutes. I'm sure we'll be talking with you more during the course of the season. Sounds good, Neil. Talk to you soon. Good to hear from Jeff McLaren on the Rays minor league system. Coming up, Dale Scott on Pride Day. This is the Rays Baseball Network. We continue on this week in Rays Baseball, and joining us right now, a uh, person who's been, what, nearly four decades as part of uh, umpiring in the major leagues and uh, joined us for Pride Day as well, and that's Dale Scott. Dale, thanks so much for being with us, and we really appreciate you being part of Pride Day, too. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, the Rays invited me to come out and throw the first pitch, and, and I would like to duly noted that uh, for 32-plus years, I handed the ball to the catcher. So there's a, uh, you know, I'm going to preface this with, uh, with before my throw. Uh, but, no, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. I, I was uh, happy to be invited and, uh, uh, you know, just looking forward to the day. Your story is uh, such an important one in terms of this sport. Tell our listeners who may not know your story when you decided to to come out and and how challenging that was at the time in 2014. Well, you know, I I, uh, I went to umpire school in 1981. Uh, I worked five years in the minor leagues, a couple winners in the Dominican Republic, and I got my job in the American League on uh, uh, April Fool's Day, <laughs> 1986, which. Uh, a lot of managers and coaches think that's uh, probably was a joke, but but the point is, I was leading a double life. I had come out to myself when I was 19, uh, before I even went to umpire school, and I certainly realized uh, when I figured out my story, my, my personal story, that uh, I knew and was fine with who I was, but I also knew I had to play the game a little bit, right? I had to, you know, you weren't. I wasn't in a position to go, hey, everybody, uh, you know. Then I went to umpire school. Uh, you have to understand, uh, in 1981, when I started the Northwest League in June, it was literally two weeks after the first reported cases of a strange, uh, uh, rare cancer affecting uh, young, healthy men in, in San Francisco and New York. Well, of course, we all know that's the beginning of the AIDS crisis. So I paralleled that all the way through uh, the 80s as I spent five years in the minor leagues and then uh, was promoted to the American League. So obviously I didn't want anybody to know I was gay because it would affect you know, moving up to double-A or even having a shot at the big leagues, but now I really didn't want anybody to know because you know, for a lot of people that don't remember or weren't, weren't around then, it was very scary. They didn't know what was causing this at first. Uh, uh, the gay community was uh, savaged by this disease, but also savaged um, socially uh, because uh, it was the gay disease, so to speak. Uh, you know, and so there was a lot of stigma to it. You know, so so I was leading a double life. I was uh, myself, uh, you know, and, and out at home. I, I, I mean, I, I you know... Uh, more so as I as years went on, you know, came out to uh, my parents and, and 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 family and friends. But when I was on the road working baseball, I was I was not that at all, and uh, and that continued throughout my entire career up until about the late '90s, when um, randomly a couple of American League umpires in spring training just happened to on a one-on-one -on -one conversation just kind of throw out there, "Hey, by the way, uh, I know you have a little bit different lifestyle. I just want to let you know." I don't care. I will walk on the field with you any day. Uh, you're you're a, you're a, you're a, you're a great umpire. You're a great person, and I just want you to know that. And I, you know, immediately when that happened, unprovoked, I my defenses went up because that's what I did. That's I had my deflector shields or whatever, because that's what I'd been doing for for so long. But that was an indication to me that uh, uh, 
you know, I was being accepted. I, you know, it, it's funny, Neil, I, I, I thought that for years I was fooling them. They had no idea. Well, apparently I wasn't fooling them as much. <laughs> so I, my acting skills wasn't quite as good as I thought it were, they were. But, um, but that, that, that evolved as we went into the 2000s. The Empire staffs were combined. Uh, I, I became a crew chief in 2001. And uh, ironically, Ron Culpa, who's working this series, uh, we worked together five, six years, but he was uh, one of the first guys on my crew when I had a, my own crew. And uh, Ron, who, you know, sometimes I call him No Filter Ron, he's great, but he just, uh, we had a crew dinner early in the year and just said, hey, let's talk about the elephant in the room. We, Scott, we, Scotty, we know you're gay, we don't care. You know, let's have some fun. And, and that really opened things up so we didn't have to act like something was going on or wasn't going on or whatever. So that's, that's where everything thawed out. From that point forward, as we moved into the you know 2000s, uh, uh, the league knew the league meaning the people I worked for uh, in, in, on Park Avenue at that time, the commissioner's office. Uh, eventually, Mike, who uh, is my husband, uh, we were married in 2013, but we've been together since after my first year in 1986. Uh, you know, he had a spouse uh, identification, just uh, you know, like like the the guy's wives or whatever when he would go to events and stuff. So when I came out eventually in December of 2014. It wasn't a shock to the umpire staff. It wasn't a shock to the people that you know uh, signed my checks and, and supervised me and that kind of stuff. But obviously, the teams, uh, the fans, the media—that uh, was some uh, you know uh, new uh, news—and <laughs> uh, um, and, and then it went from there. But I went full circle. I went from a double life and doing actively doing anything I could to uh, to make sure no one found out who I really was, to all the way coming out and 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 having unbelievably positive uh, uh, results from that. People from all around the world that messaged me and talked to me. It was really, it was really uplifting. So just to understand the timeline, it was almost 15 years before another umpire identified, before you publicly decided this is the right time. How, do, when did you decide why was 2014 the right time and not maybe necessarily before that? Well, because uh, in 2013, Mike and I got married, you know, legally married. Uh, we had, we were domestic partners and that kind of stuff uh, register with the state actually two states we have a place in Palm Springs California and then of course uh, we live in Oregon so um, we got married in 2013 uh, the marriage equality topic was on fire at, at that time and uh, Referee Magazine which is a periodical at that time about 40,000 subscribers you can't get it on a newsstand or anything but they 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 contacted me in uh, August of 2014 to do a story about my career, uh, you know, as an umpire. And they, uh, Peter Jackal did it, he did a great job. Uh, he, he, I gave him names, he researched, you know, a couple of people I went to high school with, uh, my, my uh, I used to work in radio, my, my uh, program director that I worked for, my, the guy that got me started in umpiring in, in Eugene, Oregon, uh, and really researched this article. And, and he did a great job, but after I read it, uh, before they published it, I said, you know, there's not a thing in here about Mike. Um, and he's been with me this entire journey after my first year uh, in, in the big league. So I asked Mike, I said, and, and, and the editor asked me, he said, hey, we got a bunch of you, uh, pictures of you umpiring, but do you have any pictures like family or whatever, you know, that we can put in here? I said, yeah. So I told Mike, I said, listen, I want to send this pictures of Mike and I, uh, we... We're going to Australia when, when the Dodgers and Diamondbacks opened up the season earlier that year in 2014. Um, and I said, I want to include this picture with the caption, uh, Dale Scott with longtime companion Michael Roush. You know, are you okay with that? And Mike kind of laughed. He goes, you're the one that's got to deal with it. <laughs> you know? um, so I sent that in. Um, and that was the only reference to anything. It was that picture in the, in the caption. The, uh, the referee uh, editor said, Dale, you sh we're fine with this, but are you sure you want to do this? Because you're opening up you know, I said, I know I am. Uh, so let's let's do it. It was published uh, about the last week of September, and I'm waiting for uh, a lot of uh, uh, feedback. And it was crickets <laughs> because the referee magazine is a very limited uh, uh, readership. But there was one uh, gay major college football official. I, I to this day don't know who it was, but he contacted Outsports.com if you're familiar with them and said, Hey, Dale Scott just came out in Referee Magazine. So then Outsports contacted me. They wanted to do a story. I said, fine. But now this, again, was the end of September. This was right when the playoffs were going to start. This was right when we were going to find out our assignments. Uh, I didn't know if I was working yet that year or whatever. And I said, listen, let's wait till the After the World Series. I said, you know, this is baseball's time to shine. I don't, not that I would outdo baseball, but I didn't need to be, you know, 
uh, the talk of, plus, to be quite honest with you, if I was working the playoffs or got the World Series, the last thing I want to do is talk about that, you know, going into those games. And I, he said, fine, we'll do it afterwards. They did. They published it uh, December 2nd. Unlike the referee magazine, Crickets, uh, it was within 30, 45 minutes of this thing uh, going online, it was bombarded with text messages, uh, emails, phone calls, uh, every network, every uh, sports uh, cable network, uh, radio stations. Uh, I mean, it, was, it was unbelievable. Um, I, I learned the power of the internet that day. <laughs> and um, and it was like a it was like a two day story and a whirlwind a little bit and then and then it you know and then it went away which I, I told Mike it will go away I trust me, and 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 it was great the, the feedback I got from uh, because in the uh, Outsports uh, story I gave him a, a, a email address, and P, and I thought here we go we're going to get a lot of you know stupid emails uh, uh, but it, I'm telling you it was unbelievable it was it was all good it was just uh, people from all walks of life from 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 Australia Canada you know also the United States but um, uh, you know, policemen firemen doctors lawyers I mean people saying some saying I'm one step closer to getting out of this closet because of your story or thank you for your courage and or, or because of you I, I told somebody you know or whatever really touching very humbling and um, and that was that was how it progressed, and 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 then uh, you know I worked a few more years before I had to I had to retire. Heartwarming to hear that. Was it any more difficult for you as an umpire the last few years? And if so, what was different? Well, you know, uh, this was in December, and so uh, we're a few months away from from any games. My very first spring training game, uh, early March, if not late February, uh, whatever it was, but the very first one, it was the uh, Cleveland Guardians, Indians in Cleveland Guardians in Cincinnati. Um, and their stadium, they share a stadium uh, there in, in, in Arizona. Uh, we come out from the center field, from center field. So we walk all the way to the home plate, you know. And I, you know, I never really thought of this. I mean, I, okay, we're going to go work a spring training game. I've done that a million times. As we started walking, entered the field and started walking that long uh, trek from center field, this feeling of liberation came across me. It was the first time in my career that I was on a major league field with a with a, my uniform on, that anybody uh, could just go, oh, who's number five, that umpire? Oh, that's Dale Scott, he's gay. You know, I mean, that my shield was gone. I, I didn't have a shield anymore. And it, was, it wasn't frightening, it was liberating. I felt, I've never been to jail, but I felt like I was out of jail. You know, I mean, it, I, I, it was a, I, I can't explain it. It was something I didn't anticipate. Um, but it, man, it was, it was such a good feeling that I'm finally free, I'm finally, uh, you know Dale Scott with no with no deflectors up. And by the way, in that game, uh, uh, I had two players. You know, one of the things is I, I came out in December, uh, so it was a few months later, and, and people just forget about stuff and, and whatever. Um, but Marlon Bird uh, was playing for uh, uh, the Reds, I believe, uh, um, in left field. And, uh, you know, in spring training, I started out at first base a couple of innings. Then I went to third base. And Marlon was coming in uh, after the third out, and he sees me and goes, Dale! And, he, you know, I've known Marlon a long time. He was with several teams. And I go, hey, Marlon, and that's not unusual. Spring training, guys, you haven't seen guys in months. How you doing? Whatever. He goes, and he comes right up to me and gives me this huge bear hug. Now, that is unusual. <laughs> so I said, and, and, and when he did that, he goes, Dale, I'm so proud of you. You're free, brother. You're free. And 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 I was like stunned. Um, I said, "Thank you, Marlon. I, I I really appreciate that." And and so I gave him five strikes. So the rest of you, no. I, <laughs> but I, uh, I I just didn't expect that. Um, later on, when you know a lot of the uh, veterans, starters, or whatever are done after the fifth inning, and they're walking to their clubhouse, Joey Votto beelines over to me and he shook my hand. He said, "I just want to congratulate you. You know, it took a lot of courage, and you know, congratulations." That was the first game that I worked after I'd come out. The rest of the season, I had one other player, one trainer, and uh, one base coach, and that was it. Mention it, uh, and all in a positive way, you know. But but basically, it was business as usual, which I I thought it probably would be. I hoped it would be. Uh, uh, but uh, but it was very touching that first day, and it was a, it was an emotion. It was a feeling that I didn't anticipate. Major League Baseball has been a little bit ahead of the curve. Billy Bean was hired into a position for Major League Baseball months before you came out. Where can the game still they'll grow so it is truly baseball for everyone? 
Well, you know, with Billy's hiring, which, by the way, was an outstanding hire, it was ahead of the curve, uh, Commissioner Seelig doing that, uh, I believe, in July of 2014 was, 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 you know, no major sport had done that, as far as I know, it, uh, and that was a great thing. And Billy's done tremendous work uh, since he's been there nine years now, um, you know, both in the major and minor leagues and, and both on the field, you know, players that we identify with and see but but also behind the scenes i mean uh, anybody that works for a major league or minor league team and has any concerns or questions or thoughts or whatever uh they now have uh, some place they can talk to or you know if they don't a little uncomfortable talking to billy because he's part of baseball he can direct them to the right resources um as far as the sport you know we're we're, we're getting there i mean uh it's it's not all uh uh, unicorns and rose petals right now I mean there are there have been some speed bumps with with this we saw what happened with hockey a little bit earlier this year um, so sometimes it does feel like you know two steps forward one step back but it's you know it's 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 a it's an initiative it's it's a uh, it's a it's a policy or whatever you want to call it that everybody's striving to get uh, uh, you know to get to a good place and and, and the Rays have been outstanding I think this is their 17th uh, pride night um, you know they they they're one of the leaders in, in in professional sports and certainly in Major League Baseball with with their you know their their uh, pride festivities and and how they how they do things here. So you know I'm just thrilled to be here. Well, we're glad to have you. I do want to ask one difficult question because you probably understand the culture as well as anyone. Anderson Comas, who's a White Sox minor leaguer, I think is the first active minor league player to come out. Do you think we're close to seeing a major league player? come out because i'm sure as as an umpire as a former major league umpire there are many members of the lgbtq plus community who now see you as an example i i I can do this they don't yet see that in a player right and and i'll I'll be honest with you uh i thought by this point we would have uh, somebody out i wouldn't i didn't know if it would be somebody that's already in the big leagues and comes out or somebody that, you know, in the minor leagues that is out and then, you know, gets promoted. But I really did think we would have, you know, it's happened in soccer, it's happened in football, it's happened in basketball. Um, I, I, you know, we're a little, baseball in general is a little bit behind the curve in that sense. We haven't had that happen. Um, do I think it's, it'll happen? Yeah, I do. I don't know when. Like I said, I, th- I, I, I thought it would happen, uh, you know, by now. Certainly, uh, the commissioner in Major League Baseball has um, given an environment, I would think that, you know, is very, uh, very much saying it's okay. It, it, you know, uh, we are accepting of, of, of everyone and we, and everyone, you know, everyone who wants to enjoy baseball should have the opportunity to enjoy, enjoy baseball. And so, um, so I, the conditions aren't, I, I, you know, league-wise or, or as far as the sport itself, I think are, are very, very favorable and very good. Now, team-wise, I understand, you know, locker rooms are a, are a strange thing. Um, and um, you don't want to be the, you don't want to be the talk of the locker room, you know, a non-baseball uh, uh, distraction, basically. Um, you, 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 are, you are blending a lot of guys from different backgrounds and different countries and different religions and different, uh, you know, different, uh, you know, conservatives and liberals and everything in between. And, and you're and trying to, you know, have a cohesive team to, to do what teams do and then play together and, 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 and build off each other. So you have that dynamic, but they have those dynamics in other sports, too. Um, so, uh, you know, it used to be, well, if someone comes out, it's going to ruin any chances at uh, sponsorships or, you know, or, or whatever. Well, I, I don't think that's true anymore. Um, you know, and so it's, it's obvious. Let, let me preface this for sure. Coming out is such a personal decision. And I don't believe in outing people just because I think they should be out. I, uh, the only time I believe in that, if it's a politician or somebody that is hurting the community, because they have position to do that, and they're actually, you know, gay. That that to me is, it blows my mind. <laughs> but, um, but so you know, I, I don't I don't think uh, you should not, not that you're going to do this, but force anybody out or anything. But you, uh, the best you can do is try to, like I said, have the conditions to where we're here for you. It's okay if if you make that decision to do that, and. I'm hopeful that that somebody will, uh, rather it's somebody that's promoted, you know, that's gay in the minor leagues and promoted, or somebody that's established uh, here at the big league level just says, you know, this is who I am. And uh, uh, I think when it all comes down to it, I I really do think that, hey, if you can hit and pitch, you know, uh, do do what you got to do, you know, I think, 
you'd be, you know, <laughs> and if you can't, you're, you're going to be uh, demoted. You know, I mean, I mean, it's just it, it, the, the bottom line is you're a team player. But oh, by the way, I'm gay. It's like it's like I didn't want to be the gay umpire. I wanted to be Dale Scott. He was a, you know, a 32 year major league umpire. Oh, by the way, he's gay, you know, um, uh, because that's part of who I am, obviously. But but I'm so much more than than just that. And that's pretty clear. And we really appreciate you sharing your story, your honesty. Um, and your time with us, and appreciate you being part of Pride Day here at Tropicana Field. I just ask one thing. Do not laugh at me when I throw the first pitch, because that's what most people do. So. <laughs> want to thank not only Dale Scott for being one of our guests today on the program, but also Kevin Kelly, race pitcher, as well as Andy Freed and Mark Topkin for a special interview on Mark's 40 years of service covering baseball, and also Jeff McLaren, director of minor league operation. For the Rays. And also thanks on site to Steve Versnick and Derek DuBose back at our network studios, along with Chris Miller, Becca Carney, Parker Welsh, and Alex Fuse for their assistance on the program today. If you ever have something you want to hear on the show, all you have to do is tweet me at Neil Solons. Now, next week, a special Father's Day edition. You'll hear from Zach Eflin, his dad Larry, and a whole lot more. I'm Neil Solon. Stay tuned. The pregame show is next. Rays and the Texas Rangers wrapping up the homestand. Thanks so much for being with us. This is the Rays Baseball Network. Thank you for listening to This Week in Rays Baseball. Breaking ball lifted to the air. Way up there. In the right field and deep. Judge is going back towards the corner at the wall. Gone! And the Rays jump in front 4-1. to one. If you missed any of the show, catch it at RaysBaseball.com slash radio.